Well, if you have your Bible with you, turn to Mark chapter 14 as we uh, make our way through and toward the end of the Gospel of Mark. And uh, even though it's uh, the Christmas season, it is also called Advent, as we've been calling it here. And Advent is always the longing for the return of Christ. It's not just a celebration of the coming of Christ. And uh, so we're going to be looking at a passage that is absolutely along those lines today. Uh, before, you, before we do, I want to talk about a film that just came out it's not here, just came out in select theaters, called Zero Dark Thirty. I haven't seen the film, don't know much about it, except that it's gotten really good reviews from film critics, uh, and it's nominated for like four Golden Globe Awards and things like that. It's about the killing of Osama bin Laden, uh, this, the whole story of it. Uh, but there's a, a huge political controversy that is starting to brew all around it. In fact, I, I've been watching on the news that... Uh, there are people in the Pentagon who are doing investigations because there are so many secrets that seem to be revealed in this film. They're wondering who told how that all happened. But there's a political controversy brewing because the film seems to suggest uh, that if the U.S. government, the CIA and, and all those, didn't do waterboarding, what's called waterboarding, other enhanced interrogation tactics uh, of suspected terrorists, they would not have ever found Osama bin Laden. That's the... That's the what the movie seems to suggest, and in fact, in an article I read in the New York Times, it said that what Zero Dark Thirty seems to suggest is this, no waterboarding, no bin Laden. Now, you may know, uh, waterboarding is that enhanced interrogation technique, the Jack Bauer kind of stuff, a little less than that. Uh, it creates a sensation of drowning. You're not drowning, but somehow the way it happens, what is being done, it creates such a panic psychologically, uh, in fact, uh, uh, Christopher Hitchens went, underwent waterboarding just to see what it was like, and he knew he was going to be fine. He knew it was just a, a simulation, and yet he panicked so much, the feeling was so overwhelmingly fearful. Uh, and that's why they use it as an interrogation tactic. It's that feeling of drowning, but you're not drowning. It, it's a very controversial way of interrogating suspected terrorists in order to extract information that would not otherwise come without the waterboarding. Now, here's a question. Do you ever feel like life is waterboarding you? Life itself. To be more specific, it's, not, it's like the feeling that you're drowning, the feeling like even though you're not dying, there's a sense of being overwhelmed. Your face is barely above water. You're about ready to go under. You're not, but it has that feeling that life is overwhelming you. You're still here, you didn't drown, but sometimes life gets overwhelming. And there's that pattern of drowning, a bit of relief, drowning, a bit of relief, but we never seem to get on top of the mountain. Actually, let me be even more specific. It's not really life. Life is not a personified entity. Life doesn't do anything. Let's be more specific. Sometimes I feel like God is waterboarding me. Intentionally waterboarding me. Not because he needs to extract any information from me. He knows all that, knows everything I'm thinking, knows everything I'm feeling. And that's, in fact, the very reason why he's waterboarding me, because I need to know. I need to have information extracted about me. By waterboarding us, so to speak, God is forcing us to interrogate ourselves, to get to the truth about ourselves. That's why God waterboards us with our life circumstances, because he knows that in reality, we are our own worst enemy. Or to put it in terms of zero dark 30, we are the Osama bin Laden of our own lives. 
And if you haven't come to the point where you're starting to realize that, you haven't been doing a whole lot of reflection about your life, or you're just simply not old enough yet. That's why God waterboards us. He's getting us to interrogate ourselves about the reality of who Jesus is, really is. The reality of who we are, really are. And about where we are going in and with our lives. Where is your life going? Where are you headed? What's your end game? You ever ask yourself that? In Mark 14, Jesus makes a direct claim about himself that he has not made yet, not directly, anywhere in the Gospel of Mark to this point. And if Jesus really is who he directly claims to be in Mark 14, then that means these forced interrogations that God is doing are the most loving, the most caring thing God could ever do for us. All throughout the Gospel of Mark so far, we've seen a Jesus who is predicting things and orchestrating all these events that no mere human being could do. We see a Jesus who is in control. Nothing happens to him that he doesn't let happen to him. Nothing is done to him that he's not in control of. He's in control of the timing. And he's in control of the events as they unfold. We've seen stories of that. We've talked about stories of that in past sermons. But now he voluntarily surrenders that control of himself. Here in Mark 14, Jesus voluntarily surrenders himself into the hands of those who hate him and plan to kill him. And as his disciples watch, it is a shocking scene. They are completely unprepared for it. And they should not be so shocked because Jesus had been predicting this, all of this. Back in, for example, Mark chapter 10, we saw this in verse 33, when before they even came to Jerusalem, Jesus said to his disciples, we're going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man, that was Jesus' favorite self-reference, favorite title for himself, Son of Man. And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, i.e. the Romans. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And he explains the why a few verses later. He says in verse 45, for even, here's the term again, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the disciples should not have been shocked by this happening as Jesus had predicted that it would. But what should shock all of us is this. Jesus, for the first time in all of the Gospel of Mark, directly makes an incredible claim about who he is and what that means for our future. Verse 53, we'll pick up in Mark 14, says, They took Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests, the elders, and the teachers of the law came together. This is the Sanhedrin. This is like the joint session of Congress for the nation of Israel on a local Jewish level. They were an occupied country, but they had a local government. This were their, these were their highest authorities. And, and according to the other gospel accounts, Matthew, Luke, John, this high priest here is a guy named Caiaphas. He is an unusually powerful high priest in Israel's history who served 19 years rather than the average four years that a high priest would serve. And by the way, these are toward the end of those 19 years, so his power is very entrenched and unchallenged. And he was intent upon having Jesus executed, according to Matthew 26 and John 11. That was his one purpose. But he couldn't legally do that 
Because, again, even though he was the highest Jewish authority, he wasn't the highest authority in the land. The Romans occupied Judea at this time, and the Roman governor reserved the right of execution to himself. The Jewish government couldn't just go out and execute somebody. So the religious leaders had to find Jesus guilty of a capital crime in both Jewish law and Roman law. Now, that's not going to be easy. Jewish law demanded at least two corroborating witnesses in capital cases, So these proceedings before Caiaphas seek just enough truth, just all their goal is, to receive, to just find enough truth to reach their goal of legally condemning Jesus to death. So, verse 55. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any. In other words, they have the heart, the the court, the cart before the horse here. They already know the verdict they want. Now they're just trying to find the witnesses to provide the evidence, but they can't even find that. They can't find any. Many testified falsely against him, but their statements did not agree. Then some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with human hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Now that is a capital crime in those days. But what it is is just garbled and misunderstood misrepresentations of some of Jesus' earlier teachings about his own death and resurrection. And it doesn't get anywhere. It says in verse 59, and yet even their testimony did not agree. The misunderstanding still couldn't drum up enough evidence for execution. Then the high priest, Caiaphas, this powerful high priest, stood up before them and asked Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony these men are bringing against you? At that question, it says, but Jesus remained silent and gave no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, just point blank now, are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, said Jesus, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. See, Caiaphas had finally had decided just to go ahead and ask Jesus the direct questions. He couldn't get the evidence to come up against him by false witnesses. Are you the Messiah, and are you the Son of God? Now again, up to this point in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus never directly ever said who he was. It was always a cryptic kind of thing. You can imply it from it. He did it through showing, demonstrating by miracles or a parable, but it was always kind of a little bit cryptic. But now was the right time where Jesus could give a direct answer to the question, is he the Messiah? Is he the Son of God? I am. He's not just saying yes to the question when he says I am. He could have done that. He could have said, yep, that's me. Mm -hmm, Yep. But he answered it in a much more theologically significant way, especially to who his audience was at this time. Remember, I am is the Old Testament name for God. And in Jesus' day, the Jews would never utter it. That's why the, chief, the high priest here says, Are you the son of the blessed one? He can't utter the word for God, I am, because they were afraid of taking God's name in vain while they kill him. But anyway, that's another point. But Jesus is saying that he is the I am. It was just a few hours before this, we read in the Gospel of John, when the soldiers came to arrest Jesus before this trial. And they said, Where is Jesus? And Jesus turned and said, I am. Just like that. And it says in John 18 that the soldiers fell back on the ground when Jesus said, I am. 
That's kind of what's going on here. And now at last, all the cryptic sayings, all the parables are left behind, and only in these final hours of his life, standing before the Jewish highest authorities, is Jesus able to reveal his true identity. He is the I Am of the Old Testament. He is the Messiah. He is the Son of God, directly said and directly claimed for himself. So verse 63, the high priest at that tore his clothes. Now, back in Jesus' day, that was a cultural sign of horror and, and indignation. Now politicians just say, I am shocked, saddened, and appalled. But in those days, they tore their clothes, making a big show. Uh, Why do we need any more witnesses, he asked. You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They got what they needed. They all condemned him as worthy of death. So this tearing of the robe is kind of a contrived response on Caiaphas' part. But inside, he is thrilled. Because now they all had the evidence that they had failed to get. But the evidence they failed to get by people, false witnesses, Jesus provided directly himself. He could now have Jesus legally condemned and executed because blasphemy was worthy of a sentence of death in Jewish law and claiming to be the Messiah, well, that was a rival to Caesar, which is liable to death by Roman law. So they had everything they needed. That's why he asked it. Verse 65, Then some began to spit at him. They blindfolded him, struck him with their fists, and said, Prophesy. And the guards took him and beat him. Now, just think about this. This is like the joint session of Congress. This is the hall of Israel's highest authorities, their most distinguished leaders. But you can see at that point, now that they had what they needed to condemn Jesus to death, all their rage, all their pent-up anger and hatred toward Jesus just gushes out. And they start hitting them with their fists. They blindfold him, hit him, and, and mock him and say, prophesy. And catch this. Think of this. The message of Christmas is this. The God of the universe, the God who created the entire universe, became part of his creation permanently by becoming a, the person of Jesus Christ. And if that's true, what we see, the, the God of the universe is letting them do this to him. And just stop and think about it. The God who created the entire universe is letting people beat him up and spit on him. Why? Well, Jesus foretold that this is why he came. This is why he was born. To give his life as a ransom, a substitute for you and me. Taking the judgment of God for you, for your sin, and for my sin upon himself. That's why the God of the universe let himself be beat up and eventually crucified. It says here they blindfolded him before they beat him up. They blindfolded him, beat him up with their fists, and they said they mocked him by saying, prophesy. And what's ironic is that unwittingly and and ironically, they were fulfilling Jesus' own prophecy. At that very moment, they, went to make a, they want to make a mockery of Jesus' ability to prophesy, but as they are doing so, his prophecies are coming true, all coming true. He's taunted, Jesus is taunted that he's such a hopeless prophet that when he's blindfolded, he can't tell who's hitting him. And simultaneous to all this action is Peter's denying Jesus three times before the rooster crows, before sunrise, just as Jesus predicted. 
So remember we saw Jesus predict his own being beaten and hit back in Mark chapter 10. So both the hitting of Jesus and the simultaneous Peter denying Jesus three times are all happening at the moment while they're mocking him as a false prophet. Now here's a clip from the movie The Passion of the Christ that I think provides a good scene of what we've just read. Let's just take a moment and watch it. Men 
Jesus' claim about himself to the high priest. I am the I am. I am the Messiah. I am the Son of God. But it's now clear to us why all these chapters we've been reading in the Gospel of Mark, story after story, Jesus keeps referring to himself as the Son of Man. And why that was his favorite term for himself. Obviously, he had always had this reference, this old ancient prophecy of the prophet Daniel, hundreds of years before Jesus was born, that vision that the prophet Daniel had, and that term, son of man, talking about the coming of one called the son of man. This is what Jesus is quoting to the high priest, and we'll look at the whole passage that he's quoting, because the high priest obviously knew the whole passage, and so did everybody else in that room. Daniel seven thirteen, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days, that's God, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. Now, no one gets worship except God in the Bible. Everything else is idolatry. So somehow this Son of Man is approaching the Ancient of Days on the same level as the Ancient of Days, but there's something about Him that is also the Son of Adam. Adam just is the Hebrew word for man. He's a Son of Man. 
and the Ancient of Days because he receives worship. Only God receives worship. He receives worship from those of every nation, tribe, and language. They worship him because he's God and the Son of Man. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed, and that's why they accused him of blasphemy. Because Jesus is claiming to be him. A new humanity is created in this true Son of Man who is both God and man. The I Am, the Son of Man, and the Son of God. And the first time, remember, we saw him use that term back in Mark chapter 2 when this man lay before him crippled, deformed, and Jesus went to him and all the people were watching. And Jesus said back in Mark chapter 2 verse 10, but that you may know that the the Son of Man, has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Everything in that picture was significant about the Son of Man. The Son of Man forgives sins. Only God can forgive sins against God. It's the only way we become holy. Jesus makes us holy ones by forgiving our sins so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on the earth to forgive sins. Only God has that authority. I say to you, rise, take up your mat, and go. And the man who was deformed, the man who was broken, the man who was crippled, rose and became restored and went home. This is what the Son of Man will do. The Son of Man, the true human, the true Son of Adam, and also the Ancient of Days. He's God Himself. He's the Son of Man who heals what is broken in our humanity. He heals what is, bro- what is deformed in our humanity. He restores our true humanity, what it was originally created to be, as the Son of Man, the Son of the true human, the Ancient of Days. He became a Son of Man so that we could become sons of God. Daughters of of God. But here is the most crucial part of all this. When Jesus says all this, the high priest asked him back in verse 30, 61, the high priest asked him, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? I am, Jesus said, and you will see the son of man, me, sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. These aren't rain clouds. When the Bible talks about the clouds of heaven, it's talking about God's very glory, this cloud that represented the glory of God, heaven, the glory of God coming down to earth. Jesus says, the I am. I am the I am. I am the Son of Man and the Son of God, and therefore you will see this. This will happen. Jesus predicts that a day is coming when all of them will see him, the Son of Man, sitting at the right hand of the Ancient of Days and coming down with the glory of God, the glory of heaven, back down again to the earth. The fulfillment of all Jesus' earlier predictions, all these things we've looked at in weeks past, ensures that the future fulfillment of this prediction is going to happen. Everyone will see this day. That's Jesus' prediction. You will see this, and he has a pretty good track record for predicting what will happen. 
If Jesus' prediction does come true, then this is our future. This is your future. This day is coming for you. Now, we had a lot of fun last Friday joking about the Mayan calendar doomsday thing. Comedian Jim Gaffigan tweeted this. Isn't there part of everyone that hopes that the Mayan calendar is right? And then he goes on, let's wrap it up. As far as I know, he's a non-Christian, but he has this sense that this world is not the way it's supposed to be. This world is a dark, broken place. Let's just wrap it up. Enough is enough. If Jesus was born to a virgin, if Christmas is true, then Advent is also true. His coming again. If Jesus lived and did the miracles that he did as the Son of Man, if he taught what he taught as the Son of Man, died on the cross and rose from the dead as the Son of Man, then his predictions are going to happen just as he said. So, like I've asked before, do you have an if-then kind of faith? If this is true, if this happened, then this also will happen, as he said. If this part is true, then it's all true. Or, or if, if this part is not true, then none of it is true. That's a reasonable faith. Using our reason and our intellect to help us have the right kind of faith. Everybody has faith. Everybody believes things they can't prove. But do you have an if-then kind of faith? is the question. I don't know if you saw the opening of Saturday Night Live a week ago yesterday, the Saturday after the tragic shooting in Connecticut. You know, normally Saturday Night Live opens with a bit, and then they kind of, after a skit, say, live from New York, a Saturday night, and then the saxophone comes in. Well, this last Saturday, they did it altogether different. They started with a children's choir dressed in children's, dressed in choir robes, and you can see the Advent candles and kind of a church scene there singing Silent Night, two verses of Silent Night, a song about the coming of the King, a song about the birth of Jesus as God, Silent Night, they sang, Holy Night, with the angels, let us sing, Hallelujah to our King, sleep in heavenly peace on Saturday Night Live. Now, Saturday Night Live has been doing nothing but bashing Christianity for years, right? Christians are stupid, bigoted Neanderthals, easy to make fun at, and their audiences have laughed, and Christians have been intimidated and kind of laughed too for just, what else you do? But the secular atheists at Saturday Night Live and their audience apparently can't live with the if-then of their own belief when real tragedy strikes, so they have to borrow from a worldview they've done nothing but scoff at for years because nothing in their worldview gives them any answers, any comfort, any hope, any meaning after something like that. And it shows how the box of their own worldview, so to speak, is completely inadequate to deal with all of reality like when tragedy happens. So they have to come over to our sandbox and borrow. Sit in there for a while. They've been pooping in that sandbox for years, but now that sand is really important to them. But what's weird 
is that Christians have the one worldview that is fully adequate to explain all of the realities of life, including the tragedy in Connecticut, but in a crazy kind of way, we instead borrow from them too. From Saturday Night Live and all their secular atheism and that whole worldview. It becomes our worldview, and we go sit in their sandbox, and we play in their sand. See, in their moment of crisis, they come borrow from our faith, but in our day-to-day life, we go borrow from theirs. We live as though life is about living for ourselves, living for the moment. We live living for our sexual impulse, that life is our own. I can live it any way I want. It's my own life. That's borrowing from their worldview. We live by greed. We live by relational selfishness. We're borrowing from their worldview. There's nothing in our worldview that says we should think that, act that way, live that way. We borrow from their worldview in our day in, day out, rather than the far bigger life of living for the Son of Man and His for sure coming kingdom forever. So do you have an if-then kind of faith? Have you interrogated yourself enough? The if-then Have you interrogated yourself when life is, when God is waterboarding you? Who is Jesus really to you? What do you believe? Do you believe that he taught what he taught, did what he did, the miracles that he did, and the witness of the apostles to his death and resurrection is true? Is that reasonable to believe? Is that more reasonable to believe than it didn't happen and somehow the church still just sprang into existence in 15 years and spread throughout the entire Roman Empire? That just sort of just happened. Who is Jesus? Who are you? Is your life your own? Who owns you? What is the end game for you? Where is your life going? What is your future and how does that affect your right now? See, an if-then faith is something that I need to constantly interrogate myself about because I borrow too. I'm a borrower. And I need to tell myself every day, if Jesus really is who he says he is, the I am, the Son of Man and the Son of God, then that means this coming event is happening. It's the overarching context of my whole life. It is the coming event that everything in my life is leading toward. My whole life will be defined and determined by this future coming event. So I need to interrogate myself, am I believing that? If, then, in my relationships, in my marriage, in my hopes rather than despair and depression, in my possessions and what I value and see as significant, in my moral behavior, or am I borrowing and living completely inconsistent with any belief system? I'm just living in the moment. This is what the New Testament teaches about that day because Jesus said it will happen. 2 Thessalonians 1.7 says, this will happen when the Lord Jesus Christ, this is kind of hardcore, okay, but this is one of those verses in the Bible you still have to read even though it's hardcore. You can't highlight it with a black magic marker and move on. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, just like Jesus said, 
in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God. And catch this language, do not obey the gospel. Obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction. I'm just reading the Bible. I know we want to highlight it with our black. I just, we got to read it. Everlasting destruction. And catch this. This is what it is. And shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people. See, because he forgives them of their sin. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. That's why they're holy. That's the only reason why they're holy. And to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This day is coming. Now, we can get into all the specifics of that another time, but here's the bottom line. See, if Jesus is who he said he is, then in the end, everybody will get what they want most. If they want to be shut out from the presence of the Lord now, they'll be shut out from the presence of the Lord then. If they want to marvel at his glory now, they'll marvel at his glory then. That's how it works. Everybody gets, in the end, what they want most. Now, we're conflicted, but what we want most is not shown by what we say, but what we want most is shown by what we seek after most. Value, treasure, see as significant most. That's what we get in the end. If Jesus is who he says he is, the I am, the Son of Man, the Son of God, then that means. He really is what your soul needs most. He really is your creator who created you and knows what being truly human really is. Knows how, what it takes to satisfy your longings. He is your creator who is the home that you long for where you've never been. The memory that you embrace that you've never lived yet. It's that longing that you have inside of your soul. It's God imprinted upon you. You can't, ignore, you can't forever ignore it. It always keeps reappearing. A lot of times during Christmas, that feeling that we're missing out on something that should be, and we long for it, and we never find it. If Jesus is who he says he is, the I am, the Son of God, the Son of Man, he is what your soul really needs and longs for, and you will never find happiness outside of him. You can't do it. It doesn't exist. Impossible. Because this is his universe we live in. If Jesus is the I am, if Jesus is the Son of Man, if Jesus is the Son of God, well, then, that redefines everything in our life, doesn't it? So as the worship team comes back up, I just want to take a moment and let you just lightly, nobody's going to waterboard you right now, but let you interrogate yourself. If Jesus did these things, if the witness of the apostles is true, he said this before Caiaphas, the high priest. He was charged and accused and condemned for blasphemy. He was crucified on the cross. He rose from the dead. And Christianity spread like wildfire after that. If that really happened, then what 
defines your life? What is your life all about? Where are you headed right now? What needs to be redefined in your life? Redirected in your life? Let's take a moment and reflect on the Son of Man.